Well, thanks for joining us as we continue this series called Rise or Fall, The Life of David. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a key topic in the life of David. It took him 12 years uh, to learn these principles that I'm going to be sharing. And uh, it's, it's all, it all has to do with waiting. I don't like to wait. Do you? I'm pretty impatient. Uh, I don't like to wait for traffic. I think that's why I live in Topeka. Um, but I even, even like those roundabouts, like a 21st in Yurish, um, when it's for more than four cars and I'm waiting, I'm impatient. My wife looks at me and goes, chill, chill, because I'm impatient and I need someone in my life. And so whatever I'm going to be sharing with you today about waiting and being a patient person who waits on the Lord, folks, it has to go through me first. I'm a work in progress and I need this message today just as much as you do because many of us are waiting. We're waiting either on our own lives or we're waiting on something to happen in our lives. We're waiting on people around us to do things we want them or need them to do. And we need to wait. And that's the distinctive of the life of David at this time in his life. He learned to wait on God. And that's that distinguishes him distinguishes him as different than Saul because Saul didn't wait on the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord. He kind of acted impulsively and then asked for forgiveness later. And so what we want to learn from is we want to be like David and we want to follow how he waited on the Lord. He gives us kind of a legacy verse in his life because in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, Solomon, his son, wrote this. And I believe it was from the legacy of David. He said this, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. You see, everything that we're going to gain uh, from this message is because David waited on the Lord and trusted the Lord to deliver him. You know, as you're waiting, there's three principles that I want to share with you about what, what, you know, what is God doing when you're waiting? And I'm going to go through these quickly, but I'll keep coming back to them because I think they're the reason why God uh, has us wait for different things in our lives. And the first thing that we need to remember when we're waiting is number, number one, God is always working his plan. We think that when we're waiting and when we're not doing or being or having or getting that God must have be busy out in Africa or something like that. And what we'll find out in this passage is God is always working. He's always working his plan. He's never, he's never on the sidelines. He's always in the game. And sometimes we have to wait for God to work. Those of you who are control freaks, hi, I'm Joe and I'm a control freak. Um, when I want my kids to do something and if I try to, you know, control them, they usually rebel against that. And so we have to wait on the Lord with our children and those things that we wish would happen quicker. And we've got to wait because God's always working out his plan. Secondly, God is always shaping your character. When you wait, you're going to get a picture into God shaping David's character here. And I think God does that with us. I think our world needs patience because our world is addictive to being impulsive, instant gratification, getting it now, not waiting. So we overspend. We do all those things because we aren't patient. We aren't waiting on the Lord. But as we wait, we're going to learn more than ever through the life of David. We get underneath his veneer. We actually get to see his character and how God shapes his character through a time of waiting. If we get this with David, think about all the people who will benefit in your life as God reveals your character through a time of waiting where you could be a blessing because dad waited. 
Because mom waited. Because brother waited. I can, I can trust the Lord in a time when I don't know what's going on. In times that I wish something would happen. So God's always working his plan. He's always shaping your character. And then God is always preparing your future. God is always preparing your future. And we get this because we get the whole life of David. We get that whole picture that, that before he was king, this happened in his life. And God built him into a man after his own heart because he waited. And he showed it a future during this time of waiting that would benefit him as he became king, which we're going to get into in the near future. But here's the issue. Waiting is uncomfortable, isn't it? And waiting is rarely just waiting alone. It's usually joined with waiting and crisis. Like if you're waiting to get married and the person you're going out with says, I don't, I just want to be friends. Okay. That's a great end it kind of thing. I just want to be your friend. That's, that moves you into a deeper level of crisis, doesn't it? You're not just waiting, but you're also feeling rejected. Some of you are, are waiting on a diagnosis, but you also have pain and suffering as you're waiting on that. Some of you are waiting for that promotion. And the guy next to you who works half as hard as you do, goes home far earlier than you do, he gets the promotion. And you're wondering, why? This is unjust. This is unfair. Why is this happening to me? But God is always preparing you for a future. A future. So if we were to put these three principles together into a definition of what patience is, what waiting on the Lord is, it's patient is waiting on God to work his plan in his timing for his purpose and for your best. Those three things about God is that he's working his plan. He's doing it in his timing and he's doing it for his purposes. That all calls you to be a person of faith, right? And as you're a person of faith, you can trust That whatever you're waiting for, God is going to do that for your best. When you compare those, how can you lose by waiting? You compare those principles together of God working his plan, timed for, for his purposes and for your best. And here's the truth about waiting. As a follower of Jesus, right now we're all waiting, right? We're all waiting for Jesus to return. So you're always in wait mode. You're waiting for something better to happen when Jesus will return and make all wrongs right. He will, righteousness will, will be ruling on this earth as it is in heaven. And so there's a push. There's a push to get it or to make it or to have it all now. But really as a follower of Jesus, we're waiting on something better, uh, for us and for all of eternity. I like how Peter describes it in 2 Peter 3.13. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As a follower of Jesus, I look forward to the glorious appearing of Jesus. We are not as we will be. And that is the great hope and confidence of the believer. Is that whatever happens unjustly to us now, whatever happens that's unfair, whatever we're waiting for, it pales in comparison to what eternity will be like. So waiting uh, shows us that God is working his plan. He's shaping our character and he's preparing our future. This story in the life of David began after he defeated Goliath. A kind of chant happened when David would enter a room or enter a city. And here is the chant. First Samuel uh, 18 verse 7. It says this. David has, uh, I'm sorry, Saul has struck down his thousands 
and David his tens of thousands. That used to be how David entered the room. Hey, Saul struck down his thousands. David, ten thousands. And if you're Saul and you're an insecure leader and someone's touting a person underneath you at one-tenth the value they give you, look out. There's going to be jealousy. There's going to be anger, especially if you're not trusting in the Lord and you're not waiting on the Lord. You're more impulsive. So that wedge started between Saul and David. Saul started hating David for his success. It moves forward and the story continues and it deepens into resentment. In 1 Samuel 18, 14 through 16, it says, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. Remember, that was the compare and contrast. Lord wasn't with Saul anymore. He was with David. And when Saul saw that he had a great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Like, how does that guy do it? No matter what he does, it's successful. We love those people. They're our best friends, right? No, it brings in envy and jealousy. But all of Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and he came in before them. That literally means he had the VIP backstage pass wherever he wanted. He could walk in and everyone said, David, come on, tell me about this. David, come on. And everyone loved having him around it and only drove that wedge. And so it kind of, the story kind of amps up here now as David is playing in the presence of Saul. He's playing his harp. And Saul takes a spear. It's shown to us in, um, in chapter 19. It says this, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But David eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. That phrase that I kind of bolded there, to fled and escape, that's going to be the pattern of these nine chapters that covers 12 years of the life of David. He fled and he escaped. Over and over, David fled and he escaped too, and it names the place. So David fled and his men escaped with him from Saul's men against them, fleeing and escaping. See how waiting paired with crisis amps it up and moves it to a whole new level. What did David do? What did David do during this time? How did he wait? I think there's five things he did that show us throughout this passage to wait. The first one is this. David leaned on the Lord. He learned to lean on the Lord. One of the Psalms he wrote during this time of crisis was Psalms 142, 5, and it says this. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Uh, throughout this time, David learned that God was going to be his strength. God was going to be his protector. God was going to be his defender. And he learned to lean on the Lord. Now, you don't know how much you're leaning on someone or something until you lose them. And David, over the course of these nine chapters, lost a lot. I started detailing, making a list of all the things he lost. He lost his position. He lost his career. He lost his respect. He lost his honor. As Saul drove him out of the palace and hunted him down as a wanted fugitive. As literally 3,000 men with Saul hunted him down in Judah... Even he had to escape to the arch enemies of Israel and had to go to the Philistines throughout this time. He lost 
his personal honor. He lost his wife, Michal, and she was Saul's beautiful daughter that Saul used to bait him into doing what he wanted to do and even bait him into an environment that set David at risk and so that Saul wanted to kill him through just that dare to get this and then you'll get my wife. David is pursued by Saul so that Saul comes in. David's wife flies to Saul because she didn't want to be killed and Saul takes her back into his family, lost his wife. David lost his spiritual guide, Samuel, during this time, dies in Ramah. And his spiritual guide, the guy he went to to seek the Lord with, the guy who he got affirmed, who anointed him, you shall be, whispered in his ear, you shall be the next king, Samuel dies. Jonathan, his best friend, they're, they're estranged now because Jonathan is Saul's son. And, and uh, they, they had an argument, they pitted, pitted against yeah, Saul and Jonathan, so that Saul and, I mean, Jonathan and David are communicating by, by shooting arrows into a field to give yes or no answers. That confident, that best friend is lost in his life. So that David shows up in Gath. Remember Gath? That was the hometown of Goliath. He shows up in Gath and he's lost his mental stability. He fakes it because he fears for his life. He foams at his mouth and pretends to be a madman so that the leader of Gath looks at him and goes, I've got enough crazies in here. Get out of here. He lost it all. But throughout every one of these instances of loss, he learned to lean on God in every area. Loss leads to loneliness, folks. But loneliness in the life of the follower of God always is met with the phrase, fear not, for I am with you. That's a promise he gives. You're never alone when you go through loss because you have God with you. Fear not. That's one of the most repeated phrases in all of scripture. Fear not, for I am with you. And you know what? Some of you are learning here today to lean on God. Something was taken from you, a dream, an expectation, a person, a possibility. Something has been taken from you and you've realized, I really need to trust God on this because I am not doing well. Well, welcome. Welcome to a church of leaners. <laughs> That's if you have the gospel in your life, you're trusting on God to save you. You aren't trusting on your work. So many churches are built around what you're doing for God. We're built on what God has done for us in the person and the work of Jesus. Without Jesus, we don't have any hope. Jesus lived a perfect life for us, a life we can't live. He died on a cross for our sins. We can't pay that price. We can't satisfy the righteous requirement of God Jesus did. And Jesus rose again on the third day to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives. We're all leaning on God. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to learn to lean on him. When you lose someone, when you lose something, lean on the Lord. David learned how to do that. But let's look at what else he did. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 22. And we'll see what he did. And here's as that theme, David fleeing and escaping happens again. He runs and he flees. It says here, he departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter and sold gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Look at this. Something about God shows us his heart in this, in this passage. 
We may not catch it at a first glance, but as I looked at it, I realized that this is that God brought people to David at a time of waiting and crisis to come alongside of him. God is a relational God. He wants a relationship with you. Many of you have only known God through a religion, but God values and desires a relationship, a relationship of love with us. And so when we're going through a difficult time, he brings people to us. What kind of people does he bring to us? Not the people we want. <laughs> That's the problem sometimes. Is Here, David, he's fleeing for his life. We would think God would bring some really positive, encouraging, Caleb kind of people to walk into his life and, hey, you're doing good, man. You're going to be the king. But who do we bring? His family. What do we know about his family? Dysfunctional. Brothers didn't like him. They were probably fleeing for their lives. And they come. This dysfunctional family comes alongside of him at this point. But then look at else who comes. They were in distress, they were in debt, and they were bitter in soul. When I make a list for a friend, these are not on that list. But what was David doing? He was living in community. It's the second thing he was a part of in a time of waiting. He didn't go isolated. He didn't go uh, in a rebellious nature. He went to a place where God brought people into his life, and he became the leader of them. Remember when we said that God is shaping your character? Think about these people that God brought to him. I don't like people who are going through crisis in my everyday life, especially when I'm going through crisis. Got enough problems. Uh, those people who are in debt, we love getting together at those family reunions with people in debt, right? Stay away from Uncle Ricky. He always asks for money. Give him food, but not your checkbook. We, we distance ourselves from people who are always wanting money from us. And then people who are discontent. Scripture says here, bitter in soul. Boy, I like them to be my friend, right? Never happy. Never content. No, those make our don't disturb me list. And yet God brought them to him. What was God doing? God's preparing David for a future as king. If he could unite these 400 men who were distressed in debt and bitter, then he could unite a fractured Israel. If God brought these people, David, down to these people and he could lift them up, my goodness, his character rubbed off on their lack of character. God's shaping your character when you're waiting. God's working his plan. These would be David's mighty men. This would be an attractional group in his life that would be his, his cabinet when he ruled. These would be his guys. And look at where they started. Think about their stories, how they even got there. They were estranged. They were put out. They were chased after. But there's something that God does here. God tends to attract people to us that understand the phrase, me too. Some of you who have just been recently diagnosed understand this. You've got cancer. You go into treatment. And you look to the person next to you and you see them. Maybe they're a few weeks ahead of you or a few months ahead of you. And they look at you and go, me too. It's amazing how much you share your life when the walls are broken down and you're both working through something in your lives. 
That's why we value a thing like finding hope on Tuesday nights. When you're going through a struggle, your pride isn't there. You're not competitive. You're not showing your best side. You just say, this is who I am. And it's amazing how God deepens relationships when you're around people who can say, me too. I can't tell you how many families have gone through our uh, financial uh, you know, workshop that we move people through. And when they show up, they go, this is how much debt I have. And someone looks at them and goes, me too, and worse. <laughs> and God builds relationship and God builds growth through that. So here's the deal. Live in community. Some of you are saying, no, I need better people in my life and I'm going to leave and I'm going to go find other people who I want to be with. I hear that all the time. And you know what I say? You can leave, you can leave, but you still have you. And I've learned that I'm part of the issue. It's the friends I have now and the relationships that I cultivate now that, that form the bedrock of the relationships I'll have in the future. So instead of running, wait. Wait on God and live in community. Folks, we're better together and we're better because we work through issues together. And I know it's easy for you to just to jump from church to church, whichever one is least offensive to you. But sooner or later, you're going to have to look in the mirror and deal with you and see about what it looks like to follow Jesus with you and as he trusts you with other people. Live in community as you wait. And then what else happens? Well, the story continues, and it continues in a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is a place just around the Dead Sea. And uh, if you, uh, I'm going to be going there. I was there two years ago and I'm going next May. So if you'd like to go to the Holy Land, contact me. I'd love to take you. But as you arrive at Engedi, there's these caves that are up on the cliffs. And you take this ravine and you walk up this area and then you can look back and you can see the Dead Sea. Now, you can't get water from the Dead Sea. You can't drink it. It's nine times more saltier than an ocean And so you just, you can't even swim in it. You just have to float in it. And the consistency of the water is like sitting in (laughs) jello. It's crazy. But then as you walk up from this desert environment, at the the end of Engedi, you see a spring, a freshwater spring. And we saw people swimming in it. But put yourself in ancient times. You're in a desert and you hear of this oasis and you go up to this oasis and you feed and your animals can drink and you can drink and you can be refreshed. David was hiding there. Saul shows up. And as scripture shares us the whole story, Saul has to use the bathroom. So he goes into a cave to relieve himself. And... um, And it happened to be the very cave where David and his mighty men were. Now think about it. You've been anointed to be king. And Saul shows up in a vulnerable position. (laughs) He goes up. His his men say, let's get him. God has brought him into our hands today. We can take him. I mean, that was the understatement of the universe. We got the guy away from everyone else. And the main guy is right here. And we can get him. And David goes up and he clips a corner of Saul's robe while Saul's relieving himself. And conscience and conviction come over him. And he pulls back. And look what he says. He says in in, uh, 1 Samuel 24, verse 5, he says, And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. 
He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He said that twice. He's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and he left the cave and he went on his way. In other words, he didn't even realize what had just happened. Just a little snip. So he walks off. What is David doing here in a time of waiting? I believe he's submitting to authority at this time. You know, in a time of waiting, it's easy for us to take control, to do actions that are more controlling than waiting. And here David is submitting. Twice he says, who am I to to touch the Lord's anointed? He submitted to God, and then he submitted to the office that Saul held, that God had placed him in. Now, I looked at this, and there was just a whisper in the back of my mind as I saw David submitting to the authority of God here, and that was this. Wait a minute. David was anointed too, right? Remember when Saul poured the oil over his head? You shall be the next king of Israel. Couldn't he have said, well, I'm the next king. I was anointed. God rejected you, and he gave it to me. Whap, right into Saul. But no, he stops, and he goes, who am I to do this? I'm not the king. I don't have the authority to do that. So he submitted to God. When you're waiting, the temptation is to take things into your own hands. And we've got to learn to follow the authority of God. When you run from the authority of God, look out. What's shown? Impatience, impulsiveness, selfishness. That acts out in my life when I ignore the authority of God in my life. And it will happen in yours because I'm just another story in a line of grace. We need to submit to that authority. And then, as the story goes, Saul leaves the cave. He goes down the ravine. And that's when David and his mighty men come out of the cave. And he holds up the hem that he had just cut off. And he says, why do you chase after me? Why do you, why do you hunt me like a bird in the desert? Why do you do that, Saul? I am, I, God put you into my hands and I did not kill you. And think about this. If we didn't have this sound system today and you were way up there at the back of the room, I would have to elevate my voice. This was not a face-to-face conversation. This was shouting from one ravine to the bottom of the, up on the cliff. And this was David saying, Why would you do this, Saul, when I could have killed you? All his men, 3,000 of them, heard this conversation. All of David's 400 mighty men heard this conversation. And Saul says back to David. Look what he says in verses 17 through 20. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? He asked that question. The answer is no, most don't. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now look at what Saul is saying about David. Verse 20. And now, behold, I know 
that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He shouted those things back to David. This is the king of Israel who says, I know you're going to be king and your authority, your kingship, your reign will endure forever. This is something. How does a guy do that? He was bitter. He hated him. And he's professing God's plan for David in front of all of his men. Only God can do that. But you get a Saul to be able to say this because David waited. And here's the other thing he did. Not only did he submit to authority, he resisted shortcuts. When you're going through a time of waiting and you're impatient, you are going to look for a shortcut. When you're going through a time when something has been done against you and you want to get justice, you want to get revenge, you're going to have to wait and not take a shortcut of venting, of putting out that Facebook post or whatever we normally do when someone ticks us off. We've got to avoid the shortcut. Resist the shortcut. We can be involved in rebelling against the authorities that have been in our lives. And I have seen that over and over. The main reason people steal from their companies is because they feel like they aren't appreciated. When you go into that and you have that rebellion in your heart, you take a shortcut. I can cheat on this because I deserve it. That's a shortcut. And shortcuts shrink faith. Every time I've taken a shortcut in my life, it's like when I was on the tennis team as a freshman and I made varsity team and our coach, for some reason, wanted to have us run. Never realized that as a tennis player. I played tennis so I didn't have to run. And there was a shortcut through a field, no, through, through the woods. And it saved a quarter mile. And it was a well-worn path, folks. It wasn't just me. But I just thought... I'm going to do it. Just happened to be the day the coach hung out in the woods. So there I am in my white Adidas outfit. Hey, you know, she's in there. Go around this way. Shortcuts. My coach was committed to character. My coach was committed for my best. Endurance, especially when I go three sets with someone. Uh, resist those shortcuts. Some of you are in a relationship and the best thing you can say is, well, they're not that bad. <laughs> you want to bring not that bad home to see mom and dad? No, I mean, don't take that shortcut. Oh, he's he comes with me or she comes with me to church, but they're not a believer or they just aren't really excited about God. Slow down. Wait, wait. But Joe, I'm lonely. Yes, we all are lonely. I know people inside of marriage who are very lonely. Don't take a shortcut. Wait on the Lord. See what God is going to do through this. He's for your best. And we can trust him. Waiting is that value we need for God to work his plan, right? For God to shape our character and to prepare us for a future. And then the last thing I want to call out in the life of David at this time of waiting is shown to us through David's writings in the book of Psalms. Remember, David has written half the Psalms that we have in this hymn book for Israel. And I want to point you to one that he wrote during this time of waiting and during this time of crisis. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 54. Shows us this last thing that David did. Psalm 54, during this time, 
he says this. He writes this. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. What's he doing here? He's pouring out his heart towards God. You know what? Some of us go, oh, I would never do that. My prayers have to have a lot of these and thous and thines in them. No. What do you get from Scripture? God help. Amen. I mean, that sometimes the prayers are that short. We have people pouring out their heart before the Lord. But he doesn't just stop with venting of what's happening in his life. He continues and he turns his eyes to God and he worships. Look what he says this. Verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. See what he did? He not only expressed his heart, he worshipped God. When you're going through a time of waiting, write about it. Write and express your heart. Express your faith to the Lord. God knows it anyway. You're just calling it the way he sees it. And that's most of what following Jesus is. is see, I get it. I see what you're doing. I see who you are. And I commit myself to your way. That's what we're doing when we follow Jesus. And so when you're going through a time of crisis, when you're going through a time of waiting, write about it. One of the things we do here as a church is we provide a journal for you as you read the scriptures to write out. This is what's happening in my life. This is how God is teaching me. This is who God is. This is what I'll, this is how I'll trust Him. When you can write it out, every time I express my heart for the Lord, I grow. That's why we try to put everyone in our church into a small group, because anytime you can express your faith, even if it's not fully formed, anytime you can express it, you grow. In this environment, you just hear me talking to you. But when you're in a small group of doing life on life, you share what God is doing. You have interactive experiences in that. Anytime you do that, you grow. So if you're going through a time of waiting and you don't want to grow, remain silent. Disconnect from community. Stop worshiping. Some of us think we've got to be good before we come to church. The church is here for those who are waiting on the Lord in a place that they don't really understand what's going on. Because we trust him to work out his plan, to shape our character, to prepare us for a future. This is God. This is your life. Write and express. When you're going through a difficult time, write about it. Say it. Speak it. Sing it. It's the value of us joining together. And what does God do? He builds our faith He helps us wait today so that we can wait tomorrow on him and give him the glory. This is the heart of God. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to wait on God to work out his plan in your life? To sharpen and shape your character and to prepare you for a future with him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today which has taught us through the legacy of David to wait on you. In a world that looks more like Saul than David, 
I pray that we, you would work in our hearts to resist the urge uh, of, a, of an impulsive act and a lack of faith. And Lord, build our faith through times of waiting and through times of crisis that we, like David, would wait on you and draw our strength from you. Move in us as a church to be people who lean on you and who love you in the midst of our waiting. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.